If you're there, Luke 6, 20 to 26, let's read it. I'll pray and, and we'll, we'll dive in. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Guys, let's pray. God, we tremble before your word. Don't let these words just kind of go in one ear and out the other. We pray that what we read here would affect us in such a way that when we leave this place um, to get uh, today after the service, we're not the same. We're not the same. We can't see this world the same way. We don't approach the world in the same way. God, we do pray for renewal. We pray for revival. We pray that you would refresh our hearts. And we know it's often so counterintuitive. It comes to us in crazy ways. It comes to us when we release the things of this world. It comes to us in our hunger. It comes to us in our weeping. It comes to us even when the world would shut the door on us. It's there that renewal and revival and a sense of intimacy and fellowship with our Savior is found in in its most potent forms. And God, we're just praying, praying today that you would help us take up our cross and follow you. Pray, come and minister to your people in these moments. Minister to me. You're everything to us, Jesus. It's in your name that we ask these things. Amen. Um, so I don't know if you caught this or not, uh, in this text guys, but being a disciple of, of Jesus is crazy. It's, it's a crazy thing. The text here this morning begins with, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples to you and I, or those who would want to follow Christ. And this message that follows is for his disciples. And yet when we look at this message, when we look at what he has to say, we can't help but think, man, this is crazy. 
What we would, I think I said this last week, what we would, would, would woe, Jesus blesses. And what, what, what we would bless, Jesus warns us against. It's this kind of counterintuitive, crazy thing. And the disciples, it seems to me, are being kind of, we as his disciples are, 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 are almost being thrown upside down in these verses. Or perhaps, if you remember last week, we're being put right side up. But regardless of how you look at it, discipleship is so much more than uh, what we often make of it. Just a little, you know, event we do in our calendar, a little meeting over coffee, a little Bible study here or there. Discipleship is this, it shakes at the very foundations of who we are. And I hope even as, as we read this, we kind of felt that, like, whoa, am I in this with him? Am I in this? Wow. That sounds a little crazy. Now, I made the case last time that while these... Um, Ideas that Luke identifies here, in particular, the things that Jesus blesses, like poverty, hunger, weeping, persecution. I made the case last time that these things, uh, while they certainly have a spiritual sense to them at their deepest level, uh, what Luke seems to kind of foreground with his choice of language is actually the physical sense of these things. Uh, so instead of saying, as with Matthew in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, Luke just simply says, blessed are you who are poor. Let's stop there. He's not going to let us wiggle out. He's not going to let us escape from kind of the, the physical implications of these words. However uncomfortable they may make us, however uh, crazy they sound. There's a counterintuitive blessing to be found here. And Jesus, Luke, doesn't want us to miss it. Doesn't want us to miss it. So the question I want to ask here at the beginning of this sermon um, to kind of set up where we're going to go from here. And I, ha I had a lot more that I hope it doesn't seem disjointed because I had to, as usual, cut a lot last night. Um, but I, I wanted to ask a question here at the beginning to set us on a trajectory for the rest of this message. Here's my question. If Jesus is pronouncing blessing upon things like poverty, things like hunger, weeping, persecution, and, 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 and even the, the kind of physical sense of it? Are you and I, as his disciples, supposed to be, supposed to be actively pursuing those things? In other words, take that first beatitude, for example, as a disciple of Christ, am I supposed to be aiming for poverty? Getting my shelter from a cardboard box, getting my insurance from Medi-Cal, getting my food from the soup kitchens, like when I'm out in front of the gas station begging for change, is that when I know I've made it as a disciple of Jesus Christ? I have all sorts of reasons for why I don't think that's the case. I can't go into it. But take my word for it. I, 
I pray it's enough. I don't think we're supposed to be all out actively pursuing those things that Jesus is blessing here. We're not supposed to be pursuing persecution, you know, like we we all know those guys who kind of get off on, they feel good about it. Like when they go out and they actually try to stir up persecution and we're like, I'm not sure that's what Jesus is after here. But I think, I think what we need to be able to say uh, with regard to kind of these, these blessings and woes when it's all said and done is, is this, because we have Jesus Neither side, whether all the stuff that he woes against or all the stuff that he blesses here, neither side really matters all that much to us anymore. Here's what I mean. I am not living my life in pursuit of the woes. I'm not living my life in pursuit anymore of riches or or filling my belly or getting, you know, getting to the latest soiree and having a good laugh. Or getting everybody to like me. That's no longer what drives me as a disciple of Christ. I'm not owned by that anymore. I'm not pursuing those things. And then on the other side of those things that Jesus blesses. Well, I don't think we're actively pursuing them. We're not afraid of them anymore. I mean, think about the things that usually keep you and I awake at night. Think about the things that we're usually afraid of. Is it not the stuff that Jesus there blesses? <laughs> Poverty. I don't want to be poor. So we, we stay up all night and try to make, you know, financial plans or hunger. Man, the pantry's dwindling. We got nothing. Or weeping, then we go into depression. How am I going to get out of it? Or persecution, rejection. Man, I can't believe that person said that about me. And we stay up all night. We're, we're, we're all worked up about this stuff. And I'm thinking that what we ought to be able to say is that because I have Jesus now, I'm not pursuing all all the riches and all this stuff over here, but neither am I afraid of all these things over here. And in fact, what we need to be able to say, and I kind of mentioned a little bit last time, is that if we are really following, you know, hard after Christ, we can't deny it's a biblical reality that our lives will trend towards those things that Jesus blesses. But it just doesn't matter to us anymore. I mean, as we, as we, you know, sell our possessions and give to the poor, that's a life trending towards poverty of worldly goods. Or as we, you know, long for our bridegroom and we express that in fasting, like Jesus says just a few verses before this one, they're going to fast when the bridegroom's taken from them. Well, that's a life that trends towards hunger and denying self. Or as we come to grips with the reality of a broken world and my broken heart, we're going to be weeping more. He's going to take us, do you guys feel that he takes us a little deeper into our sin and we have a little bit more of a serious sense to life. We have a life that kind of trends towards weeping. And the same thing with persecution. He says, man, if, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. So, We're not actively pursuing that stuff, but in pursuing Christ, that stuff does come, which is why I think he says, blessed are you, because it just doesn't matter anymore. You're not, you're not desperate to get the riches and you're not worried about the stuff that might come that might go wrong. 
Because you have Jesus. Because you have him. We are wonderfully free. (laughs) At least we ought to be. Unattached from the things of this world because we are attached to Christ. We're not ascetics pulling out into the woods and just detaching from the world in that sense. Oh, we're active in it, but it doesn't have our hearts. Jesus has our hearts. So I can, you know, let my money go. I can l- let the food go. I can let the whatever it is go. They don't all have to speak well of me. It's okay. I'm reminded of the, and maybe you've even been thinking of it, um, that magnificent statement by Paul in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, where he says this, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I think that's where we're going with these woes. You see, it's, it's, it's about him. He is what matters. Whether I'm poor or I'm rich, don't matter to me anymore. What matters is, do I have Christ? Because if I have him, I have it all. Plenty, poverty, abundance, deficiency. I can do all things if I have him. Now, if this, in fact, is the case, if if I'm on to what Jesus is doing here in these blessings and and woes, then then I want to spend the rest of our time here really probing into this by asking two basic questions. Uh, Asking two basic questions. First, why are we so afraid of what Jesus blesses? Why does everything in us say, he can't mean that. I don't want that to be my life. Poor, hungry, persecuted. He can't mean that. Why are we so afraid of what he blesses? Or to put it another way, why are we in, in such hot pursuit after the things he warns us against. Taking that first uh, blessing in woe, the first kind of pairing uh, as an example, what do riches promise to give me? What does poverty threaten to take away from me? Why do I get so worked up about this? Desperate to get it, desperate not to lose it. There's a false gospel in money or in food or in the approval of man. There are false gospels in these things. And I want to kind of uncover what they are. The second question I want to ask is how is Jesus so much better? How is, is Jesus and the true gospel so much Better. How does it give us, does he give us what we are after only in a fuller, lasting way? So what I thought I could get from money, I actually can get from him and in a much more satisfying way. Well, how? 
So the sorts of things I want to do, I essentially think in, in, in these blessings and woes, there's a clash of gospels, so to speak. True, one true, and many false. And so what I want to do is kind of move through these blessings and woes. They're kind of set against one another. You notice that there's four of them, kind of four pairs where they're set against one another. We're going to move through each one uh, and ask these questions with the remainder of our time. So the first set of blessing and uh, first blessing and woe there is uh, verse 20 and then verse 24. Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Then verse 24, he sets this against it. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. So let me ask that question again to set us up to look into this one in particular. If Jesus blesses poverty in some way, why are we so afraid of it? And if Jesus warns us against riches... Why are we so tempted to live our lives in pursuit of them? I mean, when I'm walking down, you know, in the city, in the tenderloin, and some dude comes up and grabs my wallet, why is my gut instinct, I better chase him down, get him in a sleeper hold, get my wallet, my money back? What is it about the wallet? What is it about the cards and the, and the bank account and the, and the money? What is it? What does it promise me that I'm willing to hurt to keep it or to get it? I mean, you feel that? You get worried about money? You get anxious? What is it? Ask yourself, what is it? What's under that? Why am I so scared of poverty? Why am I so passionate about lining up my portfolio or whatever it is? I'm not saying being a good steward is a sin, so don't hear me say that. But the first thing that that comes to my mind is that money promises us a sense of security. I mean, that's even why we use the language, do we not? Financial security. I'm financially secure. I have money, therefore, I'm going to be okay. Like, you know what? If, If we run out of food, well, I'll just go to the store and I'll buy some. I'll just swipe that card. If we, you know, a car breaks down on the side of the road, we don't have to fix it. I'll just buy a new one. I got money. You know, if the doctor finds a tumor, you know, growing on my wherever, doesn't matter to me. I'll just pay the doctor to have him cut it out. Latest, greatest surgery. Got access to it because I have money. So there's the sense of security that we get from it but even more than that and perhaps moving in now that kind of a positive direction money also i think gives us access money opens doors to whatever we want right if you have the right amount of money you can get through almost any door just ask the guys who have it and so you got to think about this like husband and wives and the think about the strife that you often have talking about your budget right Oh, you know, honey, I really wanted to take that trip, you know, with the boys. Yeah, but you're going to have to get a flight and you're going to have to do this. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll do the dishes. I'll mow the lawn for a week. We start to barter because we don't have the money. Or, or sweetie, I, I really want to, 
you know, Arbonne has the latest product out and it's, you know, it costs more than a condo in Cupertino, but it'll make my face shine. And you're like, nah. all right, fine. But we're not going to eat for a week. <laughs> you know, we have all these discussions and these, these conflicts over money. Think about if you didn't have to even have the conversation at all. What do you want? Go get it. We got access, baby. We got money. We don't have to have that conversation. There's no compromise. So the sorts of things I think that we, we're after when we're, when we're pursuing money, when we're afraid of poverty. I, I suppose what money promises us can be encapsulated in the word that Jesus uses there in verse 24, consolation, which can also be interpreted comfort. He said, man, you have your money. You got your comfort now. You have your comfort. You have this comfort. You have something that money kind of helps you secure you from the things that you fear. Poverty, you know, whatever else. And it helps get you access to the things you crave. Can have this comfort lifestyle. But it's a false gospel. And it will fail us in the end. And Jesus is going to tell us that again and again and again because he loves us. Because he loves us. Even when we have money, we have this sense that it's unstable. We have this sense uh, that that it, we can't fully rest in it. It's not secure. It could be gone tomorrow. Especially if you have it invested or something like that. Just, you, you never, that's why rich people never have enough. It's just always a little bit more that they need to get. They, they feel something of the, the, the instability of it. They feel something of what Jesus identifies in Matthew 6.19. Where he says, he, he says something along the lines of this. Listen, treasure on this earth is never a sure thing. Moth and rust can destroy it. And thieves can break in and steal it. They can get your wallet. They can hack into your computer. This stuff could go. Your house, it could burn. Your car, some guy could hotwire it. And we get that sense. And so there's this kind of anxiety. What promised security and access ends up leaving us kind of actually more anxious and a little less free, even more in chains. I mean, you just have to ask Judas how this worked out for him. Right? I mean, how did he feel? How did he feel when he had the 30 pieces of silver finally in his hand? Finally, Jesus can't tell me what to do with the money anymore. It's mine. I got it. I'll call the shots. How free did he feel? How fulfilled did he feel? How secure? How excited? You know, he looked at it. And he said, man, I've been duped by the devil. And he put the, he tied the noose around his neck and called it quits. It's a false gospel. And man, especially in this city, I know I'm not popular for saying this. This is what, this is what's held out. This is what is held out. This is the gospel. You get money, you have it all. 
Can we read our Bibles with open eyes, open hearts? We say, wait a minute. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Why? So theirs is the kingdom. He said, man, the rich are going to have consolation now. Okay? That's true. Read Psalm 73. I so wish I could have gotten to that. I tried last sermon to get it in. I tried this sermon. I can't get it in. Read it. They have consolation now. It looks great. But it fails them in the end. And what Jesus gives us now and forever is access to his kingdom. It's the poor that he gives the kingdom to. We might think of that wonderful section in Matthew 6, 25 through 33 here. Where Jesus tells his disciples, you remember? He says, look at the birds. Stop clamoring about guys for a moment and just look at the birds. See how your father feeds them. No, 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 look at the fields. You see how your father clothes them. Then he comes out and he says this in verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious for your heavenly father knows what you need. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You see, Jesus gives us access to the father. And if we have the father, we have the father's world and the father's care. And so we don't need to kind of keep everything in order in our pocketbooks and we can release it. We can give to those in need freely. I don't need it. I I am wonderfully attached to Christ. Therefore, I can be detached and, and let go of the stuff of this world. We might think of Luke 12, 32 to 33. Where he says this, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. (laughs) Therefore, what does it look like to not fear and to live in this kingdom? Verse 33, sell your possessions, give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. He said, what does it look like to live shepherded by this this shepherd, cared for by this father, walking in this kingdom? You can give your stuff to whoever needs it. Because you have a God who's caring for you. And his kingdom belongs to people like you. There's your security, brothers and sisters. There's your more secure than we ever would be with money in the bank more access to all the world than we ever could have with all the money in the bank so our god owns this world and he gives us his kingdom now and in full in the age to come Second, um, blessing and woe can be found in the first part of verse 21 and the first part of verse 25. 
says this, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And woe to you who are full now, verse 25, for you shall be hungry. Blessed are you who are hungry, you'll be satisfied. Set against it, woe to you who are full now, you shall be hungry. Then. So the question is, why do we avoid hunger and pursue fullness? What is food? And I'm thinking physically here. I am, although I understand the spiritual, uh, the spiritual substructure to these words. What is food? Promise us. Where's the false gospel? Where's the, where's the gospel message in food? Well, I think food promises a sense of immediate satisfaction, right? I mean, that's why, you know, we are particularly drawn to food or drink uh, at the end of a rough day or a rough week, right? Like I, I can't fix what's going wrong in my marriage, I can't fix what's going wrong at work, at the office. I can't fix, you know, what the people are saying of me, you know, in my, you know, at, at school. But I know one way I can get immediate pleasure. I can eat or I can drink. That's something I can taste. I can put something in my belly and feel a little better. Now, I, I'm a bit ashamed of this. I actually got, no pun intended here, a little taste of this this past week. So it was uh, my birthday, and we went out for the first time. We took, we took Levi out. Levi could come out now. Uh, he, he's actually here. So he's back there. Uh, oh, don't look. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Megan. <laughs> you know, we took him out. We went out to dinner. We went out to Cheesecake Factory, okay? And after having, you know, an entree at the Cheesecake Factory, the last thing I actually feel like ever is cheesecake. But Chloe's like, Dad, come on, it's your birthday. You know, she really loves me, right? So she wants a cheesecake. And, and, and so we get a chocolate cheesecake, okay? Like chocolate mousse or something like that. And it was really, really good, really rich, delicious. We could only eat about, you know, half the thing, even all of us splitting it. But we take it home. And put it in its little box, put it in the fridge. Later on that night, I kid you not, kids are asleep. It's quiet in the house. I'm out there, you know, and I'm thinking, I'm going to eat this thing now. I know. Yeah, I know. We're, we're splitting it. But it's my birthday. And I want my cake. So I just you start eating and eating and eating and eating and eating. And, and when, I'm, when I'm to the last bite, kind of the, the conscience kind of kicks in for a moment. I go, ooh, all right, I don't want to be the guy to throw away the box. You know, I don't want to be the guy that actually kills the, the whole cake. So I'm going to leave the last bite. I'm going to put it back in the fridge. See that? A good daddy, a good, a good husband leaves something for his kids and his wife, right? What was I after there? I mean, I'm, I'm joking, kind of, but I'm not. 
Because there's something underneath that that's important. Uh, there's a window into something profound in, in those moments. I, I wanted immediate satisfaction, right? I wanted something, and I was willing to sacrifice others to get it. I mean, what, 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 that little bite left in the, the fridge that Megan stumbled upon later, and I was like, are you serious? What is this? It's like... <laughs> That actually speaks eloquently about something sinful in me. The way we handle food can be a parable into the way we handle life. So what is that little bite that I left in the fridge for my three family members to split say about me? It says, listen, daddy is going to put his appetites. He's willing to put his appetites above you. It says, Daddy is willing to, you know, go with the here and now for himself rather than surrender what he wants so that you can be blessed. So it's funny in one sense. It's not so funny in another sense. It's actually pretty serious. It's a false gospel. It's a false gospel. I'll tell you why. You think I was satisfied after kind of binging like that? Are you satisfied after binging on things or whatever? I mean, yes and no, right? Yes, your belly is full, but now you have indigestion, like literally and kind of spiritually. And now I kind of like feel bad about, oh, wow, I just, well, instead of sharing this with others, I ate it all to myself. I'm alone. There's this kind of false gospel to it. All we have to do is ask how this worked out for Esau, right? How to work out for Esau, man. He comes in from the field, this, this hairy beast of a man, whatever he was, and he wants food. His brother's cooking up a good stew. Listen, I will give you my inheritance if you give me that stew. Just fill my belly now. I'm not thinking about later. I'm not thinking about anybody else. I'm just thinking about me. And he traded everything for a full belly and some indigestion. It lets us down in the end. But here's how the true gospel works. When we surrender our appetites to Christ, when we lay ourselves on that altar, man, we want to be living sacrifices, man. I want to, I long for you above anything else. I'm willing to fast for you, Jesus. I can put aside some of that stuff because I'm longing for you. You want to know the sort of thing that happens? He actually satisfies us at a deeper level. He talks about it when his disciples are all confused about um, why he's not like eating lunch with the rest of them or whatever. He says, listen, I, I got bread that you don't know anything about. I got bread. You, you, you haven't tasted it yet. But it comes from doing my father's will. It comes from being in fellowship with my father. There is something deeper to it. It doesn't just leave you with indigestion. It kind of like satisfies you deeply and, and, and moves out, energizes you. There's this fellowship we can have with the spirit of God. That is strangely more satisfying than anything we could put in our mouth or put on our tongue. So we can forego our appetites in love for others and love for Christ. I could say, I don't need that cake. I'd ra it's more pleasing at the end of the day to, to watch my kids enjoy that. Is that true for us? We feel that way? Or is it kind of 
No, I get hangry. If you get in my way, I'm going to eat it. I might eat you in the process. We devour one another. The gospel sets us free. And in the end, you know, guys, there is a physical side to even our redemption, right? I mean, there's a reason, I think, why Jesus says he likens the new heavens and new earth to this banquet, to this wedding feast. And one of the things, amazingly, that we read, Revelation 2, 7, is this. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I mean, whatever that means, it means we are going to partake of something so satisfying, we can't even conceive of it now. We're going to eat of the fruit of the tree of of life in the presence of God. Let's look at um, the third blessing and woe. The second part of verse 21, the second part of verse 25. Blessed are you who weep now, Jesus says, for you shall laugh. And then he sets against this, verse 25. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now, it seems to me that our culture loves to laugh and hates to cry, right? That's why kind of metaphorically speaking, we, um, we put our comedians up on the stage and our corpses six feet in the ground. What I mean by that, I mean, I know you put dead people in the ground. That's what you do because they decompose. But what I mean by that is we have a culture that kind of wants to put the scary, death, dark, broken side of this reality behind the curtain, behind the wall. Don't, don't bring that out. And we want, you know, to keep our eyes focused on the comedian, the, the happy stuff, the laughter, the soirees, the parties. We don't want to see that other thing. We want laughter now, and we'll do almost anything to get it. This uh, culture is particularly prominent among men, I think. I mean, I remember how even within the church, kind of as a new believer, how frustrating, how much I would struggle with this. Like, when are we going to get deep? When are we going to talk about our hearts? When are we going to go underneath the surface and the jokes and the sarcasm and get real and get real with one another? Because here's how men work a lot of times. Okay, yeah, we'll go with you to the office and we'll talk about work. We'll go with you to the game and we'll talk about sports. We'll go with you to the bar and we'll talk about girls, but we will not go there into the depths of your heart and talk about brokenness and cry and put our arms around one another and deal with the real stuff, the stuff that makes us look weak. Weeping. Listen, that's for little boys, right? It's kind of like for men, the, the only liquid that should be coming down from our faces is sweat. No tears here. You bite that lip when we work hard. Laughter seems to indicate that a person is on top. 
that a person is in control, that a person has it all together, that life is well for them. That's why we like it. It, it, Life is great. It's well for us. Weeping seems seems to indicate the opposite. Whoa. You know, you ever seen somebody cry? Like maybe you're one of those. Maybe you're one of those that, you know, you see the, the person that goes over for prayer afterwards and you're like, oh my, do you see that person? They're crying. Ooh, they must be a mess. I'm saying we're all a mess. I want to be there too. And the people that see reality most clearly are the people that are weeping. That's, I think, what Jesus is going for here. Because there's a false gospel to the laughter. It lets us down in the end. It's kind of thin. It's kind of superficial. And we know it. And that's what drives the culture crazy when guys like Chris Farley or Robin Williams kill themselves. We don't know how to process that sort of information in the headlines. These are the funny guys. These are the laughing guys. These are the ones that make living happy. And you mean to tell me that underneath the smiles and underneath the show and behind the stage, they're they're, they're broken and weeping and, and discouraged and depressed and struggling and suicidal and wondering what's going on with life just like the rest of us. They are. The laughter now is this kind of thin, false gospel that lets us down in the end. Jesus, on the other hand, blesses those who weep because they see life as it really is. They see themselves as they really are. And this place isn't my home. Man, I'm not I'm not all put together. I mean, you know, but you know what? That's okay. Because I have a Savior, so we can cry to Him, and we can be okay talking about how we're really doing. And we face, I mean, we're, we're, we're drawn in to face the realities of this fallen world and of our fallen hearts. And we are sinners. You think the chocolate cake thing was a joke? It's not a joke. God's not going to think that's a joke. What's that saying about me? We are sinners exalting ourselves not only above one another, but above God. And we deserve hell. That's the reality that the weeper lives in. Not just for himself, but for others. Go, man. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel in light of this place. I need grace. I need a savior. I need him to come and you do too. And I know, I know that's a, you know, that's a killjoy. I know that's a party stopper for me to come in and talk about hell and talk about sin and talk about the need for forgiveness. But I'm telling you, this gospel message is in fact an invitation to the greatest party you could ever be invited to. The likes of which Hollywood has never seen, nor could they ever put even in one of their films. I'm not going to get even close to Revelation 21.4 where God himself will dwell with us and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And it's only those people who say, man, the former things isn't where it's at. They rejoice at that. Revelation would tell us the kings of the earth are upset. When the end comes, man, I had it all and now it's over. 
Rocks better come down and crush me, lest I face the lamb and his wrath. But man, those people said the former things. This is broken. Come, Lord Jesus. When that day comes, man, every tear wiped away. And true laughter, joy will ensue. Let's move to the last one here. The fourth blessing and woe, uh, verses 22 to 23 and verse 26. Blessed are you when people hate you, Jesus says, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. And then verse 26, he sets this against it. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Anybody else want everyone to speak well of you? And kind of labor and worry and get worked up about it? Anybody else afraid of rejection? <laughs> being excluded? <laughs> being hated? Being persecuted? Let me ask, what does the acceptance of other people promise us? In other words, what's the gospel that's being held out in the praise of men? If I'm not mistaken, I, I, I think at least in one sense, it, it's, it's identity. It's identity. Um, I wonder if you've noticed that the way other people see you and speak about you starts to become the way that you see yourself and think about yourself. Have you noticed that, that the people in your life, we kind of, because we're these finite, time-bound little creatures, we, we need other people to speak in to tell us what's up. We don't see everything and we know that. And so we kind of find that what other people tell us about ourselves, we start to think is true about ourselves. We start to see it as well. And just to give you kind of a silly example, I mean, have you, it's not so silly though, again, but have you ever had somebody come up to you, you know, like you, maybe you tried to try to put on your Sunday best or whatever. If you're a girl, you did your makeup and all that. And somebody comes up to you and says, man, wow, you look really tired. Are you, how are you doing? Is work going hard? You look really tired. And you're like, oh, well, I, I got a good night's sleep. I, I don't know. And what happens when you go into the mirror? What happens when you go to the mirror after somebody says that to you? What you did, I mean, you left the house thinking you look great. You were strutting. There was pep in your step. And then after that, what happens? You look in the mirror and all you can kind of see is like, man, this big shadowy bags under your eyes that are like threatening to like eat your eyes out. Like, that's all I see now. Because somebody spoke that. Now that's kind of how I'm seeing myself. My identity is being found in these sorts of things, how people think about me. It works the other way too, right? You know, when somebody speaks positively of you, 
When your boss actually comes in and man, he pats you on the back. I mean, that changes your day. Or when, when your spouse, you know, leaves a little letter by the, the bedside saying how thankful they are for all that you do. Or your, 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 your dad, who you've been estranged to for however many years, calls you up and says, kid, I'm sorry. And I love you. And you know, I think you're so much better than I ever told you. I mean, that stuff changes you, right? Now you get a taste of the approval of, of, of other people, of the, the praise of men, so to speak. And you start to crave it because it shapes your identity in a different direction. And so here's what happens. If we start to set all of our pursuits on this, well, then what ends up going on is, is, is we, we live when people speak well of us and we die when they don't. And we're just up all night reeling about it. Because we don't have everyone speaking well of us. It's the kind of stuff that drove the false prophets. I want the kings to like me. I want the people to like me. So what do they want to hear? That's what I'll say. Even if it denies what God would truly want me to say. So this um, is a false gospel. There's something fickle about the praise of men, and we know it. As I thought about this, I mean, I think that's why the the celebrities, I'm getting old enough now to be able to see this. The celebrities that, you know, when we were younger, I was younger, in their, you, you got, <laughs> in their prime, you know, they looked great. Well, now, you know, they're starting to age and change. And so now you're watching them do the plastic surgery thing. And, you know, why? What does that say? What is going on in their heart? Why are they pulling their face and lifting up their breasts and doing all these things and not just letting age happen and change happen? Because if they lose their beauty, if they lose their looks, they know they will lose the praise of man. They know it's fickle. They know it's fragile, but their identity is wrapped up in it. And so we got to keep trying, right? But then Jesus comes. Oh man, and in Christ, in Christ, we have the love of the Father in a way that's so stable, so secure, unchanging. Our identity, He speaks it over us. Oh yeah, we're sinners. Oh yeah, we're broken. But man, are we loved. I mean, you know the declaration of the Father over the, over the Son at His baptism. Behold, my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Do you realize that when we are baptized into the son, that becomes his declaration over us as well. And this is my son, my daughter, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. His banner over us is love. All our sins, all our stains washed clean at the cross. And our identity now as stable as his resurrection body is incorruptible. Think of Stephen here. I'm almost done. Thank you for your patience. I think of Stephen here. Because when, when we know that his banner over us is love, guess what? When all the world comes at us with hate, it doesn't hit us in the same way anymore. 
We don't need it in the same way that we needed their praise before. That's why Stephen, when, when, when he's you know, declaring the, 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 the call to repentance to his people, he, he doesn't even stutter when everyone turns on him and is ready to kill him. And we get this amazing scene, and we get this picture into why, because it says the heavens are opened up. Even as they're casting stones on him, the heavens are opening up, and he sees there his father and his advocate. And he said, man, it's, it is well with my soul. No matter what they're saying, stones are coming at him, but his identity is stable because it's rooted in Christ. And he's all but seated there with his Savior in the heavenlies. I'll, I'll leave us with this. Um, I've been reading this text um, Kind of in light of, a, of, a, of an image, there's kind of an image in my mind. Uh, I'm seeing Jesus almost as kind of calling you and I down off the ledge. You know what I'm talking about? You've seen those movies or God forbid you've been in those situations. Someone's standing on the ledge. They're getting ready to jump. And someone who loves you enough is going to get in your face and say, don't. Do it. Just come on down. Let's talk about this. Come on down. Let's talk about this. Because here's what happens. Here's what's happening in our hearts and in our flesh. We look out at the things of the world, at the big houses and the big meals, at the big parties and the big crowds. And people all loving and friends and fans. You look out at all that and you think, man, that's where life is. I'm stepping towards it. And Jesus is here saying, don't do it. Let's talk about this. Don't take a step. It looks like you're going to get closer to life. Let me tell you something. There's nothing underneath you there but air. And a hundred stories down, concrete. Where you'll find guys laying dead like Judas. Like Esau. Like the false prophets and their false gospels. And I don't want you to go there. Let's talk about this. I don't know what ledge you've been on lately. I, I don't know the siren calls of the world that have been coming at you. You know, whether it's money or it's food or it's, you know, laughter or it's, you know, the approval of people, whatever. But I just want you to hear Jesus in this text calling us. Turn and live. Turn back. Turn away. Turn back. And find life in him. Let's pray. God, thank you for your son. For your work of redemption. For your great intervention. <laughs> As you call your people. Down off the ledge into a counterintuitive way of life. God, I ask that we would not, as a church, be afraid of these things that you bless here, that we would hold the things of this world with open hands so that you can be magnified, so that you can be glorified, and others can come to see you. We love you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.